Welcome to the Speakeasy Crime Cafe podcast, where we speak to some of the most amazing people that you'll ever meet. The people that I bring to you have lived through or experienced something most of us never will. I'm your host, Michael Merson. Welcome, and I hope you enjoy the show. course freaked out but fucking richard bowden is so stupid that he stepped out of his bedroom with his hands in his pockets what do you think happened next they beat the fuck out of that dumbass i'm sorry richard you know i love you what the fuck were you thinking come on i was endangering idiots who called themselves hipsters but i knew they were civilians i shouldn't have been doing that that wasn't cool anyways so years later in nashville i meet pinkerton and he comes at me, because all he heard was that I almost got Bowden killed in an FBI raid in Los Angeles. That's all he knows, so he wants to whoop my ass. Not that he could have, but he came for me like he wanted to, like he actually wanted some. And people stopped him. Well, he made sure there were people in the room, didn't he? Yeah, absolutely. That's what they do. You know, everybody talks big when there's a lot so, of people and look, I get to pull him away. Yeah, I get that he loved his buddy and he heard bad stories about me. So look, I ain't really that mad at you, but it was all bullshit, bro. I didn't set your buddy up. I was just a dumbass robbing banks and paying his rent. And I'll tell you what Richard Bowden told me when he wrote. This is a great story. He wrote two songs and he wanted to demo them. And so I sang them for him. And he said, Sean, this is the best these have ever sounded. So then he turned me on to Vince Gill and Rodney Crowell. And they came to town. And Rodney, you know, married Roseanne Cash. Yeah. So these are heavyweight country guys and songwriters and so they came in 73 to Huntington Beach and asked me to sing two of their demos. One of them Rodney Crowell wrote called Ain't Living Long Like This. And Vince Gill wrote the other one. And I sang them. And after the first one, Vince Gill came walking out. And he said, never sounded like that before. That's what he told me. So he told Rodney Crowell. He went, never sounded like that. So it, it went like it goes, uh, I looked for trouble and I found his son. Straight down the barrel of a long man's gun. And the chorus would go up. Ain't living long like this. Hey now, baby. So after I'm in prison, I hear Waylon Jennings' recording of it. I sang the demo. That wow. got him the gig with Waylon. So, ain't living long like this. Because I knew a little something about that. Looking down a long man's gun. So... When I sang it, it was so hilarious. Vince came out there with, never sounded like that before, Rodney. <laughs> so, yeah. <laughs> I knew I could sing. You know, that's one thing no one could ever take away from me. I know in a room, I'm going to take them down through there, whether they like it or not. They're not going to be able to resist. Hazy and I used to say to each other before gigs all the time, we'd go, those people have no idea what's about mm -hmm. to happen. They have no idea. And then we'd go in there and hit them like a fist. Just, <laughs> So, uh, and that's how good the Greg Allman band was. Mark Williams, John Williams' son that wrote, you know, all the Star Wars stuff. His son on drums. Danny Ott and Mike Riley on guitar. Fucking Gerald Johnson on bass from all the Steve Miller records. and Pointer Sisters and just a fucking monster. We just go in there and hurt people's feelings, man. So, it was awesome. So, you so yeah, that's my last bank robbery. You're standing in light. Well, no, they had, they had arrested me and handcuffed me, and they beat up my buddy, 
well, my, who I thought was my buddy. That's how I treat my buddies. I get them raided by the FBI. Ask yourself. You didn't. You didn't rob a friend. bank on the way over here, did you? No. Okay. <laughs> no, I gave up bank. Just make sure. I gave it up as a bad. Business. Brian and I'd be like, I'm but, ready. Uh, let me tell you a couple other funny ones. Uh, Shelly Ladd, who I had a big crush on and who I never had sex with, not because I didn't want to, but she didn't want to. She was sleeping with Stephen Stills at the time, and uh, she was deal coke on the side, and I loved her, and I loved her monkeys, and so she was going to make a deposit from Stephen Stills' publishing company one day, and I went with her. And we get in the bank, and I'm in line with her. And there's a poster as big as a fucking movie poster with my picture, and it says, "Have you seen this man?" And I've seen him. I saw him that morning in the mirror. I'm standing there talking to Shelly. I look up. I was like, "Oh fuck me, fuck me." That's me standing over yonder. So you can't really run. So I had to stand there in line with her, make the deposit with other people, and. And she never saw it. People don't see that shit. Have you seen this child? All that they don't see it. So, but they were doing that in banks. That's how much they were looking for me. Have you seen this man? I'm standing there making a deposit. There's something else I found out. Did you know you could rob some banks and then go deposit it in the bank immediately, and they didn't give a fuck? All that shit about serial numbers and all that bullshit. <laughs> That's all bullshit. I deposited money in banks ten minutes after I stole that shit. You know something else? The banker never asked me where my fucking cash came from. Later, on drug deals, and then in this movie deal where I went into a bank in Beverly Hills with 280 grand in cash, no bank manager ever asked me what the fuck I was doing or where that money came from. Not once. You know something else? No physician ever refused to take money from me for narcotics in 50 fucking years. Not once. So I don't want to hear it about motherfucking doctors. When I walked in and said, give me heroin, cocaine, pills, here's the cash, they fucking A gave it to me. And they still do. So fuck all that bullshit. I know how shit works. Yeah. So, so in banks, here's another good one. Do you know that every fucking bank I robbed lied about how much money I took? Every fucking bank lied about how much money I took. What's that about? So what's going on in your bank, man? Okay. So, and then all my friends that put money in the banks in Miami in the 80s, and the feds found out that there was over $2 billion unaccounted for, what the fuck's going on? So how'd the, how did the interview go with the FBI? <coughs> it was awesome. It was so much fun. <laughs> so they get me in a room, and they got pictures of me in 20 different banks up around the room, this conference room. Homeboy, the old guy, takes the lead. He says to me, Terry says to me, does this look like somebody you know? I said, my God, he looks remarkably like me. He's like, right. I said, what? how is that possible? He goes, right, okay. So here's what we think. And he runs down his deal to me. And it was very close to the truth. That's why I was impressed. He said, look, you're a lot of things. Bank robber isn't really one of them. So you've been robbing banks, we think, to get some determined amount of money why? What was the goal? So I just thought, you know, I was exhausted. So what the fuck? I just told him. I told him the whole story. Going back to Ohio? Oh, yeah. Stepbrothers. Told him the whole thing. I said, here's what's up, bro. He said, see, I thought it was something like that. And I got all done. He said, I told these guys. I've been telling these guys. Finnegan had some sort of goal in mind. He's got some kind of... 
That's when he told me what they called me. He said I would say lanky or whatever it was. He's got a goal. There's some kind of number or a goal or something. This guy's not a bank robber. His notes are too nice and too, you know, people like him even after he robs them. He said, you're the only bank robber I've ever talked to. Where Teller said to me, I kind of liked him. I just felt like this was not what he wanted to be doing. So, um... Speaking of how shit works. So, if they don't like you, they put on what's called the chain. So when you go to federal prison, if you do what I did, which is take over the penitentiary with your the baddest motherfuckers you can find in the prison, and within a year you're running things, and then you get caught and they're mad at you because the warden and everybody gets indicted, they put you on the chain. So you get transferred to federal prison after federal prison so your family can't find you, your lawyer can't meet with you, and your mail never catches up because you ain't there. And nobody knows where you are. So. They put me on the chain because we took over Terminal Island and we turned that fucking joint out. And uh, so you get to see a lot of penitentiaries. And I think the nature of the federal penitentiary is such that once they have you, it's entirely different than the state. You probably know this as former law enforcement. In state penitentiaries, they figure that they're going to crack at you every 10 minutes for the rest of your fucking life because you're an idiot. In the feds, they think they might not get another shot at you. So they like you to do a short amount of time with a long tail so they can get all up in your grill. Because they know this is an ambitious guy that's about half smart if he's a federal, I mean, a real federal player, not, you know, a wife beater who happened to be on a federal reservation. So if you're a real federal criminal who wants to be one, they want you on paper for a long time. So in the 70s, it was not unusual to do a third of a federal sentence and then do two-thirds on paper. That was not unusual. Right. If you didn't fuck somebody up in jail, you were going home in a third. So they hung 320s on me. So they let me plead guilty to the three largest banks. This is what they did in those days. The ones with the largest amounts of money right. so that they could tag the most time on you. Then the longest second of your life when you're sentenced, when they say the word either... Con Consecutive? Or concurrent. Current. Longest second of your life as a criminal. When you stand in court and they say, three 20-year sentences to run... Consecutive. Ah! So, mine were running concurrent. So, three 20s means, if you're cool, you're going to do about seven years, Sean. If you're cool. Now, standing where I was standing, and well, that's a whole other story of how I eventually get to court and all that. So, here I am. I'm being sentenced. I got lucky, first of all. So in those days, and I think still, no, still, in the federal courts, they have what's called the lottery system, and that's how you get your judge. You draw a lottery, so that way they hope to avoid corruption, and you know, so it's not predictable who you're gonna get. So I got, my lawyer told me beforehand, if you get Takasuki or Gray, you're gonna be okay. You get Manny Real, and he named all the others, and I can still name them, they're gonna fuck you. So, Sean, you're going down for 50 years, bro. They're going to fuck you up. So that was the deal. So my lawyer was this guy who was also, what's her name, Smith's lawyer, who overdosed John Belushi, Kathleen Smith, okay. who gave Belushi his overdose. Yeah, that's my lawyer. So he tells me that 20 grand will make sure I get the right judge. So this is how shit works. 
So let's think about this as I've thought about it for 40 years after the fact. What really happened? I don't know. But I know I was out 20 G's, and I know when they called my judge, it was William Gray. So Takasuki or Gray saved my life, and I got William Gray. So did my lawyer actually use that money to get that judge drawn to me? I, how, how can I know what happened when I handed over that 20 G's? You can't. Did he know that I would serve as Adam's apple for dessert if I didn't? He did. My lawyer fucking A knew that. I'm going to give you 20 G's. Okay. So I got William Gray. Here's the kind of guy William Gray is when you look him up. He had himself booked as a prisoner drunk into a federal prison so he could show how feds were being treated in the county jail before they were taken to jail. So, and then announced himself the next morning as a federal judge in the LA Times and exposed it and would never allow a federal prisoner to be processed by the county again in Los Angeles. And you probably know a little something about the LA County Sheriff, right? So, this is living, brother. The Twin Towers. Fuck a bunch of Cook County in Chicago. This is the scariest jail in America. The Twin Towers, run by the Crips and the Bloods, and the only sheriff's deputies, L.A. sheriff's deputies, hyped up on steroids and fucking firearms with toothpicks, and their customized uniforms rolled up. You know why they're there? Because they're being punished, bro. That's how they got the gig at the Twin Towers. Yeah. You know why there's a cafeteria? Because they started shooting them when they went out to eat in the fucking neighborhood in the ghetto in L.A. Because they'd shoot them in the head. So they had to eat at the fucking jail. So that's what time it is in the fucking L.A. County Jail. So, yeah, I rolled up in there thinking I knew something. So this is the point of all this is how the feds approach you later. So while they had me in federal penitentiary and they knew they were getting ready to fuck me and put me on the chain, they came to me a week before Christmas and said, see these two dudes? You know these guys, don't you? They're from South Africa. Take me to them and you'll be home by Christmas. They did that to me every year at Christmas for three years. Well, show me where they are. Be home for Christmas. Third year, they came and said, hey, uh, we got a better idea. We're going to roll your ass out of here without handcuffs and drive you around for a couple hours and bring you home. Motherfucker, how you like that? So everybody in the joint's going to know you're a fucking rat. Now you're going to help us? So I know how shit works. I've been there. I paid my ticket, so. A little bit of intimidation to, to scare. Well, they let me know. Yeah. We want these dudes bad because they killed Americans. And you're part of it. So you're never going to get out of prison. You're, you're not going to do seven years. You're going to do 20, bro. And you might not walk up out of this motherfucker. So they killed Americans. Don't look good. The optics are bad, Finn, at the parole board. First time I went to the parole board, they said, don't sit down. You're Feds not staying want to long. talk to you about the South Africans. You don't got to sit down, Sean. See you in three years. Kick rocks. So, yeah. All that shit. This is the irony of how all these things. Call yourself a player. You're getting played. You know, I, I didn't understand that I, I was just part of a half of a machine. That's all I was. So it didn't matter if I was an outlaw or a tough guy or a scary guy or a hipster or 
I was none of those things, a criminal, an ex-con. I was just the other half of this relationship that has to have the other, or there is no relationship. So when you got arrested, how did everyone else react? I played guilty to three, and I got three 20s. How did everyone else react? All these people that you, I mean, well, you paid rent for. it's weird, you know. You took care of. It's really weird. My, uh, this is how you know who you are. I went to the Twin Towers, the scariest jail in America. And the FBI guy, who had, we had gotten to have a bit of a relationship by then. I mean, all bullshit aside. Yeah. That, that lasted over 30 years. So, he said to me, Sean, you got to make bail. You can't, you can't do time here. They'll kill you. That's what they do every day. So, um, I couldn't face the phone call. I couldn't call my brother or my mother. So I sat for 96 days in the county jail, uh, four Puerto Ricans and me in a four-man cell. So I slept on the floor with my head by the bar so it didn't have to be by the toilet. And the Puerto Ricans, when they found out I could read and write, um, they came to love me. I wrote letters for them all, and I wrote letters to their public defenders and to their wives, and they protected me. And uh, the first time I, because you know, after you work there for a while, you get paid. They put money on your books. Right. If you're white, you can speak. They immediately put me in the officer's dining room. So I got a gig day two. So when I got paid, I announced I was going to the commissary, and all the Puerto Ricans fell down laughing. They went, are you kidding? They'll rape you and kill you and eat you. You're not going anywhere near the fucking commissary. Just tell us what you want, and we'll get it for you, bro. They fell down laughing. He's going to the commissary. So... <clears throat> My first day in the officer's dining room, too. Uh, I don't know any better. Uh, there's a big sign on the wall that says, if it's not on the menu, don't ask for it. So this is the officer's dining room. They call you blue, you know, if you work there. You're blue because you're in a blue jumpsuit. Right. Okay, blue. So I didn't know it meant don't ask the civilian that runs the kitchen. That's, that's what it meant. But I didn't know that. So I'm sitting there with my little thing flipping, and the guy says, yeah, blue, make me a uh, bologna and cheese, something, something. And I laconically point at the sign. <laughs> it's my first day on the gig. And the next sound is his fucking Sam Brown shoes. What are those shoes called? The belt, the Sam Brown, the shoes. Hitting the griddle. His boot hitting the griddle as he comes over with his fucking baton at me. Chases me through the kitchen. The giant Nazi with the lightning bolts down his back is in there with the black dude doing the thing. And I'm running through. <laughs> and I run up the stairway to a locked fucking door. Of course it's locked. I'm in the L.A. County Jail. I run up the stairway and the cops are here. He goes, come on down here, Blue. I'm like, fuck that. I ain't coming down there, man. Come up here and get me, motherfucker. I'm not coming down there. He's laughing. I'm laughing. I said, why I got to get my ass whipped? I didn't know there's a sign. I kept saying, there's a sign. He went, come down here, motherfucker. <laughs> yeah, so they come in. They, in the LA County Jail, they wear Los Angeles Raiders helmets. Right. And they have these shields. So they all came down there. Came up there and got my ass and made me touch everything in the room twice. They call it flashlight therapy or thump therapy. They beat the fuck out of me. So when they got you like that, they worked me pretty hard when I was in prison. So um, I never, you know, I never, I always held my mud in jail. Um, they asked me and Jerry McDonald to testify against the associate warden at Terminal Iowa when that whole scandal broke. You guys should read about this too. As you have time, go in and okay. put in Terminal Island scandal. 80s, and okay. they'll all come up. 
we're all in the middle of it, me and Jerry McDonald. And so um, they asked us to testify against the cops for a reduction in our sentence. And I was like, but why? So the guys who helped me get laid and smuggle drugs in jail, now I tell on them because they're in trouble with you because they helped me. So then I tell on them and I, what the fuck is wrong with you people? Why would I do that? Fuck you. So they were really mad at Jerry McDonald when he said, fuck you. They indicted him for shit they knew he didn't do in Miami and took him down there and held him in contempt. And as a law officer, you probably know, your time against your federal sentence doesn't count while you're being held in contempt in another city. The clock's not running. So they could keep him there for two years. Yeah. Doesn't make a dent in his five-year sentence. So they really gave it to McDonald, man. So yeah, that's the kind of shit that was jumping off in prison. And uh, the way that they would attempt uh, constantly to um, find ways to threaten or just to find out who you were, you know, and what you were capable of and what you would do if you would tell on people. And, and happily, I always held my mud, took a great deal of pride in it. So when you get to jail? That time. You know, I went for 400 pounds of weed 15 years later. No. Yeah, I went to state prison in Wyoming. Yeah. 400 pounds. I was sober for over a decade, and then, yeah, 14 years later I went. So I was running tons and tons of marijuana between Ohio and California. And I got very greedy, and, and um, they called me and said there's pot in Salt Lake City from a deal that fell through. I was working in Ohio and going back and forth to California. This is when the IRS came and took all my money. So I've been sober for a decade, and I'm rocking in L.A., working for Mattel and doing advertising and writing screenplays with Rob Breuer and meeting with the head of Universal, and, and I'm rocking. I'm a screenwriter now. I'm a Hollywood guy. Okay. And I'm the best meeting in town because I'm a bank robbing son of a bitch whose brother is famous, and Rob had a big hit band and got the won the Oscar, and you've got to meet with Finnegan and Royer, man. They are a hilarious meeting. So people are buying our scripts and paying us, and... I'm learning that I can rob with a pencil and it doesn't have to be in a bank. So my life is changing yet again. I'm rocking. And the IRS comes and takes every dime I got. Because apparently you're supposed to pay taxes. So they came and took all my money and they said it was because of this movie that I had done and this 200 and some grand that I had deposited in Beverly Hills. And I said, look, not my money. Not my money. Never had it. It was in my name because we received it and we're going to finance a film. But then my partner gave it back to the fucking Arabs that were hoodwinking us in the first place. They said, yeah, but see, that's not what it shows here. Where are the Arabs? It just shows that you and your partners took the money out. There are no Arabs. I'm like, well, that's your story. But I'm telling you, Suresh K. Dudia and the Arabs took the money. They worked my partner for a quarter of a million dollars. So, and then I beat him up because he gave him a letter of credit for a quarter of a million dollars to get more money back because they told him, we're not just going to give you that money. We're going to give that to Jaime Saban and he's going to finish the Power Rangers with it. And we're going to double your budget, so give us a letter of credit. And he's so fucking dumb, he gives it to him. While I'm with my girlfriend at Sundance Film Festival skiing around Robert Redford and being a player, I come home and he's giving the fucking money back. And now the FBI tell me, it's my money. Ain't this a bitch just because I was a bank robber once? Ain't this a bitch? Yeah. So I was like, fuck you, that was never my money. And they're like, okay. So the next day, I had about 70 grand. And then I had some hidden. And when I say hidden, turns out it wasn't hidden. Because <laughs> so, they found it. They found that too. So, and God bless the guy in Manhattan Beach. I'm living in Manhattan Beach, brother, in Los Angeles. I am rocking. I got a six foot tall girlfriend with shit that's pointing to the sky. And she's living in a million dollar house at the beach. I am rocking. 
So the guy calls me, the head of the bank, and he goes, Sean, um, you have a safe deposit box, right? I said, yeah. He said, well, they haven't asked me yet. I went, they? He said, yeah, the IRS is here. They took all your money, bro. He said, they don't have a picture of you. They haven't asked me yet if this is you. He said, so you should come down here and empty out your, your box before they ask me if you got one, because I can't lie. I was like, my man. So I had two passports with two different names and a gun and a whole bunch of money down there. So I went and got it. They got everything else. They wiped me out. So I called Jerry McDonald the next day. He was out of prison. He's a legend. This is a guy who got arrested with 20 tons of Tyweed on the presidential yacht, the Sequoia, because he owned it. Yeah. In San Francisco Harbor, after the White House auctioned it off, he bought it and he smuggled Thailand pot. So, so I knew Jerry. I knew who he was and he loved me and I loved him and I still do. I think he's dead, supposedly. I think he's fooling the feds. I don't think you're dead, Jerry. I think you're out there, brother. You will read about him later. He's quite he, a He's signed out with Elvis and witness protection. He probably is. So Jerry, uh, um, he's the one that they sent down to Miami and contempted him. Um, Jerry uh, took my phone call and I said, is my credit still good? And he said, come on down to the warehouse, brother. So I met him in Long Beach and he had about 30 tons of weed. Took me through the warehouse, said, what do you want? And they had crystal meth, seven different colors, bright green, bright blue, bright white, bright, whatever color you want, and all the weed. And uh, he said, how much do you want? I said, well, I ain't got no money, the government took it. And he said, I don't give a fuck how much you want. So I was rolling. So just that fast, one day, destroyed my relationship with homegirl, destroyed my relationship with her son. He eventually saw me go back to prison in handcuffs. He was 12, because I'm a good father. Yeah. So, yeah, that's how that was going to go. So, yeah, but I was on the phone 24 hours later, 250 pounds of weed, sold it there, went back, got another 500, shipped it to Ohio, went back to came back here. Set how it up were you shipping it. it back? Were you driving it back? Well, there's four or five things you can do. What we were doing was, I had two guys who had vans that my friend, now this is a notorious gangster, Tim Bagford. This motherfucker's notorious. I met him in federal prison too. Anyways, we got in business. And he had guys with two vans that had packaging that was good enough that a, a dog could come on board and not smell 100 pounds. Packaged in, in the underneath of these things. And guy and girlfriend and family, kids. So they would travel back and forth from California in a van with kids. And um, I, it was never busted, ever. It's never been busted. This particular group, never busted. So I got greedy. But that day, it was the 4th of July weekend, and I was here. And all my drivers were at the lake partying. And in those days, you wore beepers. And they wouldn't answer their beepers. And they said, there's 700 pounds and you can have it for half price in Salt Lake. And I was like, fuck it, I'm driving. What, what's half price back then? I was paying 700 a pound and I was selling it for 1300 So $600 profit for every 100 pounds. It's good business. Yeah. This was uh, a step above dirt weed in those days. In the 80s, there was dirt weed and then there was the great Sensomia. But these Mexicans that Jerry was working with had found some that was in between. So I could get about $1,200, $1,300 for it, you know, at, at its peak. But not if you bought a bunch. 
But that was okay. Like, if you were buying 200 pounds, I don't care if I'm only making $100. What the fuck do I care? Like, what did exactly did I do? I didn't do anything. Homeboy delivered it. You showed up and bought it. I partied with you at a hotel for 20 minutes. Fine. Yeah. So, um, so I was, you know, very malleable in terms of pricing. Because um, I didn't have any overhead. <laughs> it was just me partying. <laughs> so, never bought a house, never had a kid, never had a marriage, never... Borrowed, never bought any furniture, never had a loan, never went to a bank, never... Fuck all that. Never went to bank to take out a loan. Never had... Fuck all that. You just took... You yeah, I just... I sort of pioneered the ATM. So, um... <laughs> so, Jerry... Uh, so, I went and, uh, to Salt Lake City and I got this weed and I... Again, I was out of my mind on drugs and I'd been up for two or three days and something went funny with the wheel as I entered the state of Wyoming. And... Uh, but the point is, I returned to the state penitentiary, and I thought they were going to fry me because of my record. And I got kind of a break. I got an eight-year sentence. And, uh, and then kind of some miracles happened. So and that's a whole other story for later in the day. But, but yeah, so I returned to the state penitentiary, and, uh, and that's a whole other ballgame. State penitentiary in Wyoming in the 90s. It's like the front row at a Willie Nelson concert, man. No driver's license and no teeth. It's fucked up. And I don't know if you know this about the West. It's a lonely, empty place. So Wyoming, there are more elk than there are humans. Montana, there's more deer and elk than there are humans. Um, they all rape their grandmother and they hack each other into pieces and they abuse children and they are the most useless scumbag prisoners in history. First of all, state prisoners. Completely fucking useless. Okay. So why these people get a second chance, I don't know. 